Welcome to Liberated Living Ministries with John and Beverly Sheesby. You are listening to the C2C message for December 2023. For more information on this podcast and our other resources, please visit our website, liberatedliving.com. Grace, peace, and joy to you at this Christmas season. And greetings to you from Bixby, Oklahoma. I know it's been a few months since I did my last message and so much has happened since then. Uh, We've traveled to Nashville, we've been to Mexico, we've been down to Texas, etc., etc. And it's been a pretty busy time, but I wanted to get this message out this year before Christmas. And so I am doing it today and hopefully Matt will have it up in the next couple of days so that you will have it before Christmas. I added peace and joy because I believe that the coming of Jesus brings to us, first of all, the message of peace that the angels brought. And that peace was not peace among men. It was the peace that God brings to us through the the death of Jesus Christ and the justification that we now have by faith in him. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then Paul says also in Romans, the kingdom of heaven is not food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And because we are righteous through the blood of Jesus, we have peace with God. All the enmity is gone between God and us. He is reconciled to us. We are reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus. And so we have that peace and that peace issues in joy, a heavenly joy that is ours. Or as Peter describes it in 1 Peter 1, joy unspeakable and full of glory. And our wish for you at this Christmas season and into the new year 2024 is that you will live in the consciousness of your righteousness and therefore enjoy the emotion of peace in your heart, in your in your emotions and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, it's a joy to be able to present something to you this month. Uh, Our daughter Tracy has been working with Dr. Benjamin Dagley on a children's book when it's for youth as well, about a a book and it's called uh, Gumballs and Money Trees. And you can find a website for it that will give the description of it, gumballsandmoneytrees.com. And you'll be able to buy the book on Amazon, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, etc., etc., And so it's all there on that website. But I want to commend it to you, Dr. Benjamin Dagley. We've been friends since 1999. And he has walked with us in in our ministry, he and his his wife, Gillian, and their children. And uh, I want to commend this book to you because God led Benjamin to teach his daughter Tatum uh, when she was asking for a gift Uh, she wanted a money tree and he bought her a gumball machine. And so the whole story is brilliant in terms of teaching children about assets and assets producing money. If he had just given her a, a gift that, you know, to be used up, but he gifted her a gumball machine, they placed it and Tatum began to increase in her 
wealth and profitability. And so it's a great book on teaching about investments, about assets and about profits. And so I commend it to you, especially grandparents buying for your grandchildren. It is beautifully illustrated by our friend Jeannie Thompson from Amarilla. She's a, an amazing artist, and we are honored to call her our friend, she and her husband Sam. And we have visited in their home a, a number of times. And so I just recommend that book wholeheartedly to you. Uh, Benjamin wrote the story, and then Tracy edited it and put it in the book. and. It's and Matt and Tracy produced the book, and so I commend that book to you. Well, this month I am completing just a four part message on the whole concept that I introduced some months ago that Jesus comes to reveal what the Father is like and to restore Daddy's picture. That's the overall theme for these past three messages and this one today. And we first looked at the fact that Jesus came to reveal the lavish generosity of the Father. And that picture is so important. Bev and I were talking on the phone this morning. She's on her flight at the moment going up to Colorado Springs to spend a few days with Brad and the grandchildren. And we were talking this morning and she was saying, that the, what we absolutely need for life in order, you know, she was talking to somebody and th this morning on the phone uh, and they were saying that after salvation, what do we really need for living? And we really need health and prosperity in order to be able to fulfill our destiny in the earth. Health and prosperity. If you're not well and if you don't have the resources, you can't do much. And so God wants you. It's all part of the atonement. He wants you to be healthy and he wants you to be wealthy. And so we've looked at his lavish generosity. And then secondly, we looked at his kindness, how Jesus revealed the kindness of God. Then last message was on the fact that he does not judge. We reveal, looked at the true justice of God and his mercy. And this month, we're going to look at the last characteristic that I want to bring in this series. And that is that Jesus reveals to us the goodness of God. And we've, the verses that we used last message and we use again are Romans 5, 7 and 8. And I told the story how I was driving down in 1989 down to Orlando to go and do some installation of drapes at a, one of the Disney resorts down there. And I was traveling with another evangelist and he asked me my testimony of how I got free from religion. And so I shared how Romans 5.17 was a pivotal verse in my journey. How much more shall they who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And that revelation that righteousness is a gift to be received by faith that enables us to reign in life, that transformed me. It brought me into a revelation of the new covenant of grace. It brought me into a revelation of the finished work of Jesus, that the blood of Jesus shed at the cross is a sufficient sacrifice for all sin, for all time. And I don't ever have to go back uh, to, to look at any of the past because it's totally covered by the blood 
of Jesus. And so I can walk in the righteousness and, and so on. So Romans 5.17 was a pivotal verse in my whole experience of coming into the new covenant revelation, which I delight to share now. But the verse that, as I told you last message, Marion then said, well, let's read the whole of Romans chapter 5. And so he pulled out his Bible. I was driving and he started reading. And when he got to verse 7, it suddenly gripped me where Paul says, for scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it struck me that he sets a good man above a righteous man. He said not many people are going to ever give their lives and die for a righteous man. But for a good man, some might even dare to die. And it's, it was so intriguing to me. And it started a study on the goodness of God through 1989 into 1990. And that continued for years afterwards. And I do want to recommend to you the set of messages on our website. If you go to our website and at the top you'll see a heading, Listen. And if you click on that, there are series. And if you scroll through the series, you'll find the series on the goodness of God. And I want to encourage you to listen to that those four messages on the goodness of God because they are the sum of the, the revelation that I'd had at that point on the goodness of God. And you will be blessed. I, I mean, to me, it's one of the key revelations that I have received after the, the revelation of righteousness by faith was the revelation of the goodness of God. God is so good. And so it started me on a journey because I thought, you know, and as I said in, in the last message, the thing about a righteous person is because they're so rule orientated and because they're so disciplined and strict about adherence to the rules, you feel uncomfortable about them. You feel measured by them. You feel judged by them. A righteous person is not a pleasant person to hang out with because the rules, you know, preempt everything else. Everything is subservient to doing it right. Uh, I've got to admit with a lot of uh, sadness that that's the way I was raised and that's the way I first related to Bev and to my children until God gave me the revelation of grace. And I'm so glad that he did. As Bev has often said, I don't know if we'd still be married if I hadn't received the revelation of grace because I was so rules orientated. I was hard on myself and I was hard on everybody around me. And that's a righteous person. But a good person is able to cover the failings of others with their kindness and with their goodness. And uh, they have an amazing capacity to uh, overlook the foibles and the failures of others in order to show them kindness and goodness. So I'm going to share with you just... Uh, basic broad strokes outline of the result of my study in 1989 and in 1990. I'm going to start with this, that as I began to study the goodness of God, the chief passage that the Holy Spirit led me to 
was Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Now, Israel had just sinned grievously. Moses had been on the mountain with God. And God had revealed the, the, what we call the Ten Commandments to him. And while Moses was up on the mountain and gone for 40 days, the children of Israel became anxious and they came to Aaron and they said, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Make us gods. You will take us on into the promised land. And you'll know how Aaron got them to give his, their gold to him. And he fashioned a golden calf and they began to commit idolatry. Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees the wretched scene of Israel just uh, uh, in total abandonment in worship of this golden calf. And there was all kinds of stuff going on. And Moses, in his anger, took those stones that God had written the Ten Commandments on and smashed them. And it was a very... Uh, serious, sobering scene. And so he goes to God. God is like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm done with the children of Israel. He says, Moses, you take these children into the land. And Moses pleads with him and says, God, in verse 12, he says, you have said, I know you by name and you also have found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you and that I might find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And so God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that we are that your people and I found grace in your sight? Except you go with us, so we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Now, if you were God and you had just had that scene of Israel in their idolatry and debauchery played out before you. And Moses, the leader, says, show me your glory. I would have been tempted at that moment to give them such a display of my power that it would scare the living daylights out of the people because God was able to do that. He could have shown them a tremendous display of his holiness, his judgment, his justice, and his power to, to scare them and change their behavior. But what does he do when, he said, when Moses said, please show me your glory? Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. God's antidote to the wretched sin of Israel was to reveal to Moses that the essence of his glory is his goodness. We have, uh, you know, we've searched for God in all the wrong spaces because religion has taught us that the premier manifestation of the glory of God is his holiness. And we've looked for smoke in the building. We've looked for all kinds of manifestations of his glory that would demonstrate his great power and his awesome holiness. But God 
in order to reveal the true essence of his glory, said to Moses, I am going to let all my goodness pass before you. I can remember what an impact that made upon me because I would never have dreamed that that would be the essence of the glory of God, that his goodness trumped everything else in, in his character. But that's what he wanted Moses to know that the essence of my glory is in my goodness. And he said, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then the next in chapter 34, the fulfillment of that. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Listen to this. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I've done messages in the past on this whole thing of the DNA of God as revealed in these verses. But here God is revealing the essence of his goodness. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering or slow to anger and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and then by no means clearing the guilty. And that was up to the fourth generation. The revelation of his goodness, of his mercy was to thousands of generations He visits the iniquity of the fathers to the fourth generation, but upholds mercy for thousands of generations. Completely out of balance. (laughs) And of course, we see it illustrated in Jesus' story of the prodigal son, where the father is so incredibly kind to the rebellious son who has left and squandered his inheritance and he receives him back. He just shows him mercy because he keeps mercy for thousands of generations. Wow, this this revelation of the goodness of God is mind-blowing. It's a study that is worthy of spending time looking at the scriptures, studying the scriptures and seeing all the revelation of his goodness. From Exodus 34, my studying led me to the Psalms because obviously in the Psalms is the greatest unveiling of the goodness of God. In so many of David's Psalms, he extols the goodness of God and describes the goodness of God. I love what he says in in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you taste the Lord, you will see, your eyes will be open to the fact that he is good. His goodness is so incredibly uh, profound that when you taste him, see, we've, we've imagined that if you taste, you'll see that the, the Lord is angry, he's, he's uh, short-tempered, He easily is offended and so on. No, David says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I can't go into all of the scriptures in the Psalms in which David extols the goodness of God. But there are are so many. Of course, we know that the key ones in Psalm 118, 
verse 1 and verse 29, the psalm is bookended by the two verses that are exactly the same. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. And the word mercy there, chesed, is His covenant love endures forever. And so the, the comfort that we have as His children is this, that if He has once shown you mercy, his goodness prevents him ever from withdrawing mercy from you. He can never, ever withdraw that mercy because it endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. There's so many of God's children that live with so much condemnation because they feel any time that they blow it, that, oh boy, they've just awakened the wrath of God against him. They've just awakened the, the judgment of God against him. And that is so not true. Because once he has shown you mercy, his mercy endures forever. He cannot withdraw that mercy when once he has shown you mercy. Isn't that an incredible comfort for your heart? Now, I want to go into how that psalm actually came about because that is a, a phenomenal revelation. And I want to read to you from Acts chapter 15 because what happened was this. Uh, when the, the gospel started coming to the Gentiles, there was great consternation amongst the Jewish believers who had always believed that Israel alone was the chosen people and that therefore when Jesus came and even after his death and resurrection and his ascension and the church began to grow, they still thought that the gospel was for the Jews alone. And it was Paul who was anointed to take the gospel further, but Peter was the first one to have his experience and encounter in Cornelius's home of the revelation that God is no respecter of persons and that God is good and he's merciful and he's gracious and he's kind. And even although Cornelius was outside of the Jewish nation, God said to Peter, arms and his prayers have come up before me as a memorial. God is no respecter of persons. He is gracious, he is merciful, and he is kind. And so <clears throat> they finally have a a conference. It's called the Council of, of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where they get together to discuss this whole issue of the Gentiles coming in to the kingdom. And they were looking for a biblical foundation or precedent or prophetic declaration that would undergird the belief that Gentiles were also included. And so um, the, the whole thing erupted because it is in verse 5 of Acts 15. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And so the apostles and the elders come together, verse 6, to consider the matter. And so it starts with Peter standing up in the midst and telling the story of going to Cornelius's house. And he says, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, 
just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And here's the premier statement. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. It wasn't by nationality. It wasn't by being part of a chosen race. It was by grace. The Gentiles came in by faith just as the Jews come in by grace through faith. And so when all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declare how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things, known to God from eternity, are all his works. So what he's in essence saying is God knew from all of eternity how this thing would pan out, what he would do, that he would start with Israel, that he would work with the nation of Israel, but that ultimately his desire was for all the nations. And so <clears throat> when he set up the whole system through Moses, that was very exclusive. It was for the Jewish people and the Gentiles were not permitted to enter anywhere close to God. There was an outer court of the Gentiles in the temple, but they could not draw near to God because they were not of the right nationality. And so God from all of eternity knew what his plan and purpose was. And so in the midst of it, we have this incredible story of the tabernacle of David that James refers to. And he is quoting from Amos chapter 9, where Amos prophesies the restoration and the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David so that all the nations might have access to God. I want you to understand this. It's so important to understand that God in creating an Adam and Eve created them for fellowship with himself, for intimacy with himself. He wanted to have relationship with mankind. And even after Adam and Eve disobeyed and fell into sin, God still came to them because his heart still yearned for relationship. And so throughout the revelation of the Old Covenant, I could go into many places where you, the heart of God is exposed, that he, he, his longing was for relationship. Israel chose distance. 
But to Moses, who went into the presence of the Lord, his face shone with the radiance of the effulgent glory of God from his being in the presence of God. God was not offended to have Moses in his presence. He wanted everyone to know him, to have intimacy with him. But Israel chose to walk at a distance. And then he found a man named David. David, who got to know the heart of God, who reveals the heart of God as a shepherd boy, singing psalms, singing of the goodness of God, singing of the greatness of God, magnifying him. David was the one whom he had chosen from before the foundation of the earth to be the channel by which his revelation came into the earth of what his heart was really all about. And this is the story. You'll remember that under Eli, the, or the, the high priest, Eli's sons were wicked. And the, the Israelites went into battle against the Philistines and they presumed upon the presence of God by carrying the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle because they felt sure if they had the Ark of the Covenant with them, they would have the presence and the power of God with them and they would defeat the enemy. And you can remember you remember the story how because of the sin that was in the camp and because he's, God said to Eli, you didn't stop your sons. You knew what was going on, but you didn't chastise them at all. You didn't stop them from their wickedness. And so the ark was captured, taken by the Philistines. And God visits the Philistines and you remember the plagues and, and Dagon falling on his face and being shattered, you know, in, in the, the, the temple. And so they get rid of it. And it winds up in a place called Kirjath Jarum. And throughout Saul's reign, he never once thought about bringing the Ark of the Covenant back that we know from Scripture. But David, once he was established as king in Jerusalem, his thoughts went to this, I've got to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we know from First Corinthians, Second Chronicles, excuse me, chapter one, that there were two tabernacles. I've got to read this verse to you because it's critical to understand the tabernacle of David. And Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. This is verse 3. For the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. So Moses' tabernacle was in Gibeon. It had everything in it except the Ark of the Covenant. But David had brought up the Ark of God from Kirjath-Jarim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. So there are two tabernacles. There's the tabernacle at Gibeon, which represents the Old Covenant. There's the tabernacle in Jerusalem, which represents a new revelation from God. And I'm going to show you the, the validity of what David did in a moment from the scriptures. But what happens is this. They go down to Kirjath-Jarim with an ox cart and uh, Utsa driving the ox cart. They put the, the Ark of the Covenant on the ox cart and they're going down the road and they're rejoicing. They're so happy to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. There's dancing, there's music, there's celebration and they get to a place where the oxen stumble and the, the, 
The Ark of the Covenant threatens to fall off the cart and Utzah, the driver, reaches behind to steady the Ark of the Covenant and with that he gets dropped dead. And so David is so upset because his intentions were so pure, were so good, he wanted to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. And so he goes to the nearest house, probably, and it's the house of a guy named Obed-Edom, who is a Gittite. That means he is from Gath. That means he's a Philistine. And his name, Obed-Edom, implies that Obed or Ebed is a servant in Hebrew, and Edom is the, the nation that came from Esau. So it seems like he had been a slave, or at least the son of a slave, to, to somebody in Edom. And so his name is Obed-Edom, and he is a Gittite. So he's not a Jew, he's a Philistine. And he is probably a slave, at least from the servant class. So he's not a highbrow person. He's not a person of great standing. It's just like, okay, this is the closest house. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant there. And David knocks on the door. And <clears throat> Obed-Edom, I have a box that I want to leave here in your house. Well, what did you, would you do if you were Obed-Edom? I'd say, oh, king, live forever. Go ahead. Put it anywhere you like. Because this is the King David and you're in a foreign country and you dare not withstand the king. I mean, at a word, you could be dead. And so they bring in the Ark of the Covenant into Obed-Edom's house and miracles start happening. God starts to bless Obed-Edom. You can read all about it. And this is what it says in First Chronicles chapter 13. So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in the house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. The blessings of God just began to flow uh, onto Obed-Edom. So David hears about it and realizes God's not mad. God was just upset with Uzzah. Why? And so in chapter 15 and verse 1, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister him forever. In other words, he says, we didn't do it according to the proper order, and that's why God broke out about against Uzzah. But here was the conundrum that David faced. Uzzah died. Obed-Edom was blessed. How could Obed-Edom, who was a Philistine, who was not a Jew, be blessed because the Ark of the Covenant was in his home? And it caused David to seek the face of God. And I believe this because of what 2 Chronicles 29, which we'll read in a moment, God gave a revelation through Gad, the king seer, and through Nathan the prophet and said, basically, I do not want to go back into the tabernacle of Moses. I want to be accessible to everyone. I want you to put the ark in an open-faced tent 
where anybody can come into the presence of the Lord. Furthermore, the, ark of, the, uh, the tabernacle of Moses was a place of great silence except for the, the sound of the roasting of the meat. He said, I want music. I want celebration. I want dancing. And so he gives the whole revelation through the prophets of what he wants in the Davidic worship. And I'm going to read that to you from first, Second Chronicles chapter 29. And this was during the restoration of Hezekiah. And as I go through in the series of messages on the goodness of God, throughout, at every point of restoration in Israel, there is a restoration of Davidic worship and particularly of the song that we'll get to that God gave to David and to Asaph on the day of the dedication of the tabernacle of David. But this is what it says through in, in Hezekiah's restoration. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the Lord to his prophets. He includes David as a prophet there. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offerings on the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshipped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshipped. And we're going to see what that song was that God gave to David and to Asaph on the day of the dedication. But what I want you to see is that that song was called the Song of the Lord. And it was accompanied by great celebration, by a lot of music. God is revealing something totally new to his people. Something that is so incredibly wonderful that he loves the praises of his people. In fact, as David says in the Psalms, he's enthroned upon the praises of Israel. He wants the praise. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Come before him with singing. Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. God gives instructions. He said, I don't want silent worship anymore. I want a celebration in my midst. I want the people to be jubilant. Get all the instruments of music and sing and play and dance before me. And so what happens is this. David sets up the tent in Jerusalem. Then he goes with Israel to bring up the Ark of the Covenant from Obed-Edom's house. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and set it in this open tent where 
everyone can have access to the presence of God. That was the heart of God. It was, don't put me back behind that curtain where only the high priest comes in once a year with a sacrifice of blood. I want people to rejoice before me. I want them to celebrate in my presence. I want to have music and dancing and celebration and praise and and joy in my presence. And so there's this fresh revelation according to what we read in Second Chronicles 29, fresh revelation that was given through David, through Gad the king seer, and through Nathan the prophet. God wanted to establish a new order, and he found a man after his own heart named David, who could get catch the heartbeat of heaven, that God wanted communion with man. And we read in First Samuel, or Second Samuel chapter 7 how David goes into the presence of the Lord and sits in his presence after he's received the prophetic word from Nathan about his household. David then goes into the presence of the Lord and he sits in the presence of the Lord. Uh, this is what it says. Verse 18 of chapter 7 says this, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? And so on. And he prays before the Lord. It ends up with this. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing let the house of your servant be blessed forever. And what is so amazing after that chapter, David goes out and he conquers nation after nation. It was like he had the blessing of the Lord upon him. He had the promise of God's presence with him. And so he is emboldened and strengthened to go out and defeat all the enemies and to conquer and take back land that had been stolen from Israel because of the presence of the Lord. Now, that is the story. Amos prophesies the restoration of the tabernacle of David. And that is the story that James says reveals that God's heart was to bring in the Gentiles, all the people who are called by my name, to be able to access his presence. Now, what is so interesting in the story of Obed-Edom is this, that when the Ark of the Covenant goes, <laughs> oh, this is the best part of the story. When the Ark of the Covenant leaves Obed-Edom's house, He says to his brothers, or his brothers say to him, We saw what the Lord did while the ark was in your house. The untold blessings that were upon you, your family, and everything that belonged to you. And if the ark goes to Jerusalem, and you move, and Obed-Edom became a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. But listen to this. And Obed-Edom, in verse 38 of chapter 16, with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun, and Hosa to be gatekeepers. Obed-Edom and his 68 brothers, brethren, relatives, became gatekeepers in the tabernacle of David because Obed-Edom knew, man, while the Ark of the Covenant was with me, look how I was blessed. I would be foolish not to go and to be in the presence of God as a as a gatekeeper. Ha! Huh. Isn't that amazing? 
So great was the impact of what his brethren saw of the presence of God in Obed-Edom's house in the space of three months that they said, well, if you're going to Jerusalem, you're becoming a gatekeeper, we're joining you. And they all, 68 brethren, became gatekeepers in the, in the tabernacle of David. What was the tabernacle of David about? It was about a new order that, according to what James said, or what is said in Acts 15, was known to God from all of eternity. God knew what he would reveal through David. Now, of course, under Solomon, the temple was built. The box went back behind the curtain until the son of David died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom, not bottom to top. Man didn't do it. God did it. And he, he declared the access into his presence was open to all people. And that's the message of the gospel and of the goodness of God. God wants to be good to all. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, that just requires me to do one thing. The Song of David, which is called the Song of the Lord. And that is the song in First Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 7. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones, and remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant. And, and so on. And then we get to verse 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And that becomes the song of the Lord, the song of David. That is repeated over and over again in every point of restoration. Think of the dedication of Solomon's temple. When the glory of the Lord filled the temple, what did the people do? They were on their faces and they were crying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. The song of David came up in the dedication of Solomon's temple under Ezra and so on and so on. At every point of restoration in Israel, there's a restoration of Davidic worship. But the particular thing is the song of David. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good. And then I come to Jeremiah 31, 32 and 33, the pronunciation of the new covenant. And in the midst of it, in chapter 33, Dave, uh, Jeremiah prophesies, once more there will be heard in the city of which you say it is without man and without beast. There will be heard the so so sound of the bridegroom, the sound of the bride, and the sound of those who will go into the, uh, the uh, presence of the Lord, and of those who will sing, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. 
under the new covenant that was prophesied by Jeremiah, there is a restoration. I'm telling you, folks, I feel this so strongly. We've lost that sense of joy in the presence of the Lord and extolling his goodness. And what do we do because of our unworthiness? We lapse into imagining that the greatest appellation that we can give to God is holy, holy, holy. And I challenge you to look anywhere in the scriptures where any human says holy, holy, holy. The angels say holy, holy, holy. In Revelation, where they're worshiping the Lamb, they say, oh, worthy is the Lamb to receive blessing and honor glory. There's no holy, holy, holy. The angels say that. But mankind doesn't say that because we are overwhelmed by the goodness of God that allows us access into His presence. And God wants to restore that song in the church. He is good. He is good. He is good. Oh, uh, Bevel and I were listening yesterday morning during our quiet time to the song of Jen Johnson. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will tell of the goodness of God. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. The goodness of God should be the song on every one of us. Oh, he is good. Whenever we experience blessing, we should be able to say to people, oh, it's the goodness of God. God is so good. He's so good to me. He's so good to us. We should be extolling his goodness so that the world knows that our God is a good God. Their impression that they have of God from the religion of the, of the, the, the modern church is that God is is withdrawn, he's aloof, and you've got to get all your ducks in a row to come into his presence. But he demonstrated through David and Davidic worship that he just wants to have up close and personal friendship and relationship. I've got a set of messages as well that you can look up there under series, up close and personal, and it reveals the heart of God. All he wanted was that intimacy And he made it possible through the sacrifice of Jesus that we could have access into his presence. Now, I want to ask you this question. What did Obed-Edom need to do to have the presence of God in his home and have the multiplied blessing of God poured out upon his family and all that he had? I was sharing this message in Cali in Colombia and I asked that question and from the back there was a little lady who cried out, Abre la puerta, which means open the door. That's all Obed-Edom had to do to have the presence of God. Open the door. Open the door. Open the door. Revelation 3.20, remember Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea that had become so self-sufficient. They thought they were rich. They thought they had everything that they have need of, but they didn't realize that they were wretched and in great need. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. And a 
according to our knowledge of the new covenant and what God has done in Jesus on the cross. When Jesus comes in, he brings with him all the groceries for the feast, for the celebration. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? When Jesus comes in, when you open the door, he comes with all his manifold blessing to reveal all the goodness of God the Father to you. That is what God wants to see restored that daddy's picture has been so distorted by religion because we have presented such a terrible image of him as being this God who is so holy and so aloof and so separated from us that we can't have any fellowship with him. And that's not the true picture of God. That's not what God wanted to reveal in Jesus. I was reading this morning in my quiet time, Matthew in Mark chapter 1, when the man with leprosy, came to Jesus and said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I had just read yesterday in Haggai these amazing truths which reflect the law. Haggai asked the nation, if something unclean touches something clean, does it make the unclean thing clean? No. If something unclean touches something clean. Does the clean thing make the unclean thing clean? No. And yet Jesus is moved with compassion when the man says, if you will, you can make me clean. The Bible says Jesus was moved with compassion and reached out and violated the law of Moses and violated all those principles that Haggai was talking about because Jesus was the clean son of God and he touched that unclean man and immediately the leprosy left him. And this is what Jesus said, I am willing. I am willing. That's the goodness of God. I will come in, he said in Revelation 3.20. I will come in. I will sup with him and he with me. He's so willing because he wants relationship. He wants intimacy. And he wants to remove out of your consciousness all the stuff that the enemy has used to form a barrier between you and God because you felt unclean. You felt unprepared. You felt like you don't qualify. And he has qualified us, according to Colossians chapter 1, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. God qualified you. The moment you believed in Jesus, you became qualified for every one of his blessings. Now, open the door. Child of God, open the door. I shared this word up in Nashville in November or October at our conference. And I was so thrilled a couple of days later to see somebody, one of the the members of ShopFix Academy, had posted on their Facebook page and he said, I have opened the door. (laughs) Open the door. Open the door. Open the door to his goodness. Open the door. Don't put me back, God said to 
to David in essence. Don't put me back behind the curtain in the tabernacle of Moses. I want to be able to touch people. I want to be able to have relationship with people. I don't want my presence to be something somber and something forbidding. I want people to come with joy. I want them to come with celebration. I want there to be music. I want there to be dancing. I want the harps, the, the stringed instruments. I want everything. The trumpets come into my presence and rejoice in my presence because I want fellowship with God's people. Open the door, my brother and sister. That's the invitation to know the restoration of God's picture to you. All he wants for you to do is open the door. Father, we open the door to the presence of Jesus. We open the door to everything that he brings to us of the nature of the Father and of the blessing of the Father. We open the door to every part of our lives, places that we've kept reserved for fear of exposing them to your light, lest you should judge us. But we heard last message, you don't judge. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You want to save every area of our lives that we have kept hidden for shame, for guilt, for fear of condemnation, for fear of judgment. We want to open that up so we open up every area of our hearts and of our lives to your presence. Come in, Father. Come and reveal your goodness. Come and display your goodness. If you are looking for people like Obed-Edom, <clears throat> through whom you want to send a message that you're not bad, that you're a good God, that you're kind, then we open ourselves to you. I have one last thought to leave with you, and it would be remiss of me not to mention this. Why could God bless Obed-Edom when he had killed Uzzah? And the simple answer is this, because Obed-Edom was not under the Mosaic Covenant. He was not subject to all the restrictions of the Mosaic sacrificial system. And so all he had to do is open the door to his home to experience the blessing of God. He didn't have to qualify in any other way except to open the door because he wasn't under that old covenant. And I've got good news for you. Neither are you. You're not under the old covenant. You don't have to fulfill the requirements of the law. Let me remind you again of the picture that I love to share. Under the Mosaic system, when a, a sinner brought a sacrifice for their sin to the priest, the priest would examine the lamb to see that the lamb was without blemish. And if the lamb was without blemish, the worshipper was accepted based on the fact that the lamb was without blemish. And when Jesus died on the cross, the lamb of God, he presented his blood before the father. And the father was pleased with the sacrifice, so much so that he raised him from the dead and poured out his spirit. And the first words Jesus said to his disciples when he saw them was peace, peace. He had made peace through the blood of his cross.
So let me tell you, God isn't examining you. He's examined Jesus and you are accepted because of Jesus' precious blood, because of his sacrifice. So I say to you today and at this Christmas time, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God and open the door, open the door to his presence, to his blessing. May you have a wonderful Christmas season and may you be blessed in 2024. I'll talk to you again next year. This is the conclusion of this message. Thank you for listening to the ministry of John and Beverly Sheesby. For more information on this podcast and other resources, please visit our website, liberatedliving.com.